Well, each of the first three Gospels all record um, a story of Jesus calming a raging storm. And you probably recall uh, this, this account of the disciples getting into a boat. They were going to cross a portion of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it even says that Jesus went down into the stern of the boat and took a nap. Uh, which is fantastic if you think about that and all that was going on there. And it uh, does tie a little bit into the fact that Jesus was a human being. But he also, I think, had a purpose behind this and knew what was coming. But while Jesus is asleep, there's a furious squall that comes up uh, in the, the sea there, which was not uncommon at all. And the disciples begin to fear for their lives. And they think this could be it. And Jesus is asleep. And so they go and wake him up. Probably more than just a little irritated at the fact that he's sleeping through all of this. And they say to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Jesus got up. And you remember what he did next? The Bible says he rebuked the wind and the waves and it just went completely calm. If you were in the disciples' shoes at that point and you had just experienced and try to just imagine being there, experiencing what they just experienced, what do you think would be going through your mind? At that point in time. And we actually have a record of that. Mark tells us in his gospel, Mark 4.41, says this. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? That was their question. See, they'd been with Jesus for a little while. They're kind of starting to figure some things out, but they still haven't totally figured it out yet. And they ask this question, you know, all of this happens, and they're like, who is this guy? Who, who can do this? You know, who is this that can even quiet the, the, the winds and the storms? Who is Jesus, really? That's the question. That's the title of today's message. It's the most important question you could ever ask. And the answer to that question, how you answer the question, who is Jesus, will impact your life now, and it can change your eternity. And so we're going to dive into that today, and we're going to be in John's gospel, actually. Uh, John gives us a little bit more of a straightforward approach to answering that question. And by the way, just so we understand a little bit about the difference here, um, the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are sometimes referred to as the synoptic gospel. Some of you may be familiar with that term. If you're not, let me just tell you where we get that, that word from. Uh, the, the, the prefix sin, S-Y-N, not like S-I-N, but, but sin, S-Y-N, means to bring something together. Think about synergizing or synthesis, bringing things together. Optic, you know, think about an optician or the optics of to see. And so synoptic would mean to see together. So these first three Gospels have kind of a similar outlook in the, the, the way that they record what happened. Uh, they're referred to as the synoptic Gospels. John, on the other hand, sees things from a different perspective. Now, I think it's really important to say they're not contradicting one another in any way. They're just simply looking at things from a, a, a bit of a different angle or pulling certain things out. And, and uh, the synoptic Gospels, there's a little bit more of... Uh, what is sometimes referred to as the messianic secret. I mean, Jesus doesn't just come out and say, I'm the son of God, follow me. He more leads people that way and asks them questions and causes them to think about it. Uh, John's gospel, a little bit different approach. He's more direct. 
uh, Jesus is much more, he records what Jesus says about being the Son of God a little more clearly and uh, a little more straightforward in uh, talking about who he is. And so John's gospel is the one that I want us to, to, to start with today because of that just straightforward, here's how it is, and we're going to start in John chapter 1. And we're actually going to go back from this uh, chapter is going to take us all the way back to the very beginning. So John 1, 1 through 5 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you go back to um, the Synoptic Gospels, two of the three recorded genealogy of Jesus. Matthew traces the genealogy of Christ back to Abraham. And then you have Luke, who gives a genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam. I mean, back to the very first human being. And then you have John, who goes back further than that. He goes back to the very beginning of time. This is who Jesus was in the beginning, was the Word, the Word was with God. And the word was God. And then in case we missed it, he repeats himself again and says, he was with God in the beginning. So it's really clear uh, what John is trying to communicate here. And then in verse 3, it says that through him all things were made. Jesus is the creator of everything. He was with God in the beginning. He created. He was the, 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 the one who created all things. And if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, how does Genesis 1-1 start? Anybody know? In the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created. And, and so it, it goes through chapter 1, goes through all these different things that, that God created from the very beginning. So John uses real similar language and starts the same way and says, in the beginning was the word. Now that, that term there, that Greek term is the word logos. It's a term that usually is translated as word or speech, maybe, principle or thought. In Greek philosophy, it was even referred, it was what was used to refer to divine reason or kind of the mind of God. And so when John says that in the beginning was the, the logos, the word, that this is the mind of God, this is Christ himself, the embodiment of the word of God. And I find it very, very interesting that it says that the word created all things in the beginning because how did God create go back to Genesis 1 every time God created it says God said let there be light or let there you know heavens be formed or whatever it was God spoke everything into existence isn't it cool to know that the word is the one who spoke everything into existence and so John is connecting Jesus all the way back to the very beginning uh, in Genesis chapter 1. And then you get a little bit further into Genesis 1 and you get to verse 26. And it says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Very interesting that he uses the plural there. And that's one of the indications, certainly not the only one. But one of the indications that God exists and always has existed as the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together in one. And so Jesus, really important for us to understand, Jesus 
did not come into existence at the point that, that he entered the world, at the point that he was born as a human being. He transitioned from being in heaven to being God on earth, taking on human flesh, but he has always existed as God from the very beginning. Verse 14 tells us what happened when he became a human. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there again, you see, Jesus is distinct from the Father. It's not that the Father, you know, that God changed and left heaven entirely and came to earth. No, Jesus came from the Father, was sent by the Father, and became one of us. And it reminds us that this was the Father's plan from the very beginning. That this idea of, of sending Christ had been in his mind uh, all along. But here's where I think sometimes we can get a little bit confused. It's the language that we use, right? We talk about father and son, and we know how this works. The son was created, in a sense, by the father, right? The father exists first, and then the son exists. That's the way things work in this life and in our experience. And so when we start talking about father and son, sometimes it can be a little bit confusing to say, okay, wait a minute. Does this mean that God existed as Father first, and then at some point the Son was created and came into existence? And the answer is an emphatic no. In fact, that's what John is trying to help us understand. In the beginning was the Word. It's not that Jesus was created at some point down the road, but He was with God in the very beginning. Again, some of the terms that we use can be a bit confusing. John 3.16, one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. It certainly has to be the most quoted verse in all the Bible. If you go back to probably the way if you grew up in church, or you grew up learning John 3.16, you probably memorized it or learned it this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the rest of the, the good news of the gospel wrapped up in that one verse. But that little phrase there, begotten, what does that mean? His only begotten son. I mean, begotten also kind of sounds like, okay, first was the father and then the son came along at some point. That is a, a Greek word, monogenes, that means that he is unique. One of a kind. The only in its category is literally what that, that term means. And so some have translated that as his only son rather than only begotten because they're unique son of God. He's unique in that he has always existed as God from the very beginning. That's what sets Jesus apart. Because if you think about it like this, does God have only one son? Yes and no would be the answer to that. I mean, yes, this monogamous, this son of God who has always existed from the beginning of time, absolutely. But doesn't the Bible say that we have become sons and daughters of God. And so we are also children of God, but we are different. We are not in the same category as Jesus. So he is this unique, pre-existent son of God. We are born into the family of God when we come to a point of confessing our sinfulness and placing our faith in Jesus who died on the cross to pay for our sins. When we trust in him as our Savior and as the one who has covered our sin debt, then we become daughters and sons of God. Jesus has always been that. That's who he has been from the very beginning. That's who he will be for the rest of eternity. 
And so he is unique in that way as the Son of God. One of the, the doctrines that I find helpful in this, you'll never find this term in the Bible, but I think the principles are, are, are biblical. Uh, it's, a, it's called the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. The, you know, theologians try to figure out, and they've been, you know, for, for thousands of years, I mean, now from the very beginning, going back 2,000 years ago, we've been trying to figure out how does, how does all this work together? I mean, we know that Jesus is God, and He's the Son, and uh, you know, all these things that, that kind of blow our minds sometimes. And so some smart people came up with this, this doctrine that teaches this, that the Father eternally communicates His divine essence to the Son without division or change, so that the Son shares in the same nature as the Father, but also remains distinct from the Father. I know that's a mouthful. There were whole church councils about this, where they debated what is the nature of Jesus, and they, they, they debated this term homoousios, which means of one essence, of one nature, and they decided that, yes, Jesus is homoousios with the Father. He is of the same nature, but distinct as a person. And in a similar way, there's the doctrine of the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit, which is similar, but talks about how the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and is one in essence, but also distinct, so that there is the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, and three persons. So the Son is a separate person from the Father, but is one God, they are one God. He's always been with God in the very beginning. And then you go back to verse 14 where it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. At a point in history, Jesus became a human being. Why? Well, let's back it up from verse 14 just a little bit and read John 1, 11 through 13. It says, He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. Verse 11 says that he came to that which was his own. I see a connection between that and verse 3 when it says Jesus created everything. He was the creator of all. So whether we're talking about nature, whether we're talking about you know, created beings, human beings, Everything was created by Christ. So Christ came to that which was his own. He's the one who created it all. And yet, what he created rejected him, didn't receive him. Now, obviously, when it says that, it's not speaking just categorically that everybody rejected Christ. It's saying, in general, the majority of people did not receive Christ. But according to verse 12, there were some who did because he says, yet to those who believed in him those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now that little phrase there comes, brings us back to this question of who is Jesus really and why this matters so much. We are coming back to that because it says whoever believes in his name. When you see that phrase in scripture, in the name, you, we talk about this, we pray in the name of Jesus. Well, well what does that mean? Like, is, is it just the name that matters? Well, that phrase uh, is talking about a lot more than that, when it says in his name, it means the whole essence of who he is. So if, if we believe in the totality of who Jesus is, then we can receive this, this gift of being called children of God. So that's why we need to understand who Jesus is. If our salvation depends on that, and it does, then, then it, it matters 
immensely. If Jesus was not God, then he couldn't have become our Savior. Because the thing that qualified Jesus to become our Savior is the fact that he was sinless. He was sent by God to become a substitute for sins. If Jesus had sin of his own, then he would have had to pay for his own sin. He couldn't have paid for our sin. He couldn't become our, our substitute sacrifice. And if Jesus were not God, it would be impossible for him to be sinless because part of the human existence, part of our human nature is that we're sinful. Now, Jesus did have a human nature, but he also had a divine nature, and he was... Uh, he didn't have that, that sin gene passed on from a father because he didn't have an earthly father. He had his heavenly father. But, but that's what qualifies Jesus to be able to become our sacrifice. And so what we believe about him when it comes to who he really is, it really matters. really, really does. Now you go on the rest of John, and like I said, John is more straightforward about this. Um, there are seven what are called I am statements in John's gospel, and I find these really interesting because uh, we're going to talk in just a minute about what this, this phrase I am means. There's a lot of significance to that. But Jesus just comes out and says these things about himself. He says, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. In chapter 8 and again in chapter 9, he says, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10 I am the door. By the way, if you're really wanting all this stuff, all this is in the, the notes online. I would encourage you to use our online bulletin and notes. That's all there. If you're trying to furiously jot down a lot of stuff and you just want to know that that's there, it's, a, it's available for you. I am the good shepherd, John chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14. And then last week we were in chapter 15 where Jesus said, I am the true vine. So seven different specific I am statements, but then there are a couple of more that are really important, and let's talk about why. Let's go all the way back again to the Old Testament. We're bouncing back and forth a little bit today. Exodus chapter 3. Do you remember the dilemma that Moses had in Exodus chapter 3? So God appears to Moses in a burning bush. He says, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses is thinking, oh, I'm sure that's going to go over really well. He's going to lose all of his slave labor just because he... You told me to go tell him, let the people go. And so Moses is battling with this. And listen to the conversation he has with God. Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? That's a fair question, isn't it? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You know, that term I am is, is where we get the name Yahweh, this name of God, which a very devout Jew would never say because that is such a, a holy name, is held in such high reverence and high regard. But that, ma that name indicates, it speaks to God's self-existence and his self-sufficiency. He says to Moses, tell him I am has sent you. There are a couple of times where Jesus uses that phrase, and it's very clear what he is saying when he does. John chapter 8, uh, he is uh, basically kind of in a, uh, a battle back and forth, an argument with the Pharisees. And in John eight fifty eight, it says, Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, 
they knew what he was saying here. First of all, that's bad grammar. So if you're just trying to use it, you know, that's, that's not good. But that's, that wasn't his point. His point was to use this name, I am, to use the name of Yahweh to refer to himself. It was very clearly a, um, an acknowledgement of his own divinity. And they knew it. Because if you read what happens after that, they all tried to stone him as a result of him saying this. It's very clear that he was claiming to be the eternal God. And then another example is at the end of John's gospel, when the guards came to arrest Jesus. And listen to this, John 18, 4 through 6. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he. Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. There was so much power in the, the, the phrase, I am, coming from the lips of Jesus, that when he said that, the people literally fell back because this is God eternal they're speaking with. And by the way, it's remarkable to me to think that Jesus, the great I am, did not use his power to avoid being arrested. He actually submitted and, and allowed himself to be arrested because that was part of the plan, was that he would become this sacrifice for our sins. But Jesus clearly had this divine nature in him, but it's also important to point out the fact that Jesus was human as well. And sometimes maybe we, we miss that. Yes, it's true that he's always been God, but it's also true that Jesus became a human being. Philippians 2 talks about how he emptied himself and took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And so the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully, fully human as well, excuse me, divine and human, both of those together are essential for us. And let's talk about the impact of, of what that means for us, that he is human as well. Uh, sometimes Jesus operated within the limits of his humanity. For example, John chapter 4, verse 6, the woman at the well story says that Jesus was tired from the journey. He was hungry. Jesus experienced those types of limitations that we as human beings experience. He, he, he got exhausted. At other times, we see Jesus operating out of his divine nature. We see him performing miracles like calming of the storm that we talked about earlier. We see him feeding 5,000 with five loaves of bread, two fish. He healed the lame. He gave sight to the blind. He opened the ears of the deaf. He even brought the dead back to life again. Operating certainly within this divine nature. And one example of that is found in the story of his good friend Lazarus. John chapter 11, where Lazarus had died, and Jesus is about to bring him back to life. But it's really interesting that you see the, the human side of Jesus in that passage as well. Because John eleven thirty five, 35, some of you have memorized this before, because it's the shortest memory verse in the Bible, right? It says, Jesus wept. That's it. But that verse speaks to the humanity of Jesus. Why did he weep? He wept because he was entering into this sense of loss that his good friends and the sisters of Lazarus, the family members of Lazarus, they, they, were, they were mourning him. Now, Jesus knew what he was about to do. He wasn't weeping because he was dead. He's about to bring him back to life. But he felt their emotion. He, that was his humanity. Let's look real quickly at one other uh, a couple of verses of scripture in the book of Hebrews. 
that uh, I want to end on, on this thought. Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18, where it says, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, to be fair, that, that little phrase there, fully human, is not in the original text. That's inserted for clarity uh, to, to help us understand how he became like us in every way. Because there is a way that he was not like us, and that is that he was not sinful. But he was human. He had that nature that, that we had and experienced what, what that was like. Um, and so he's talking here in this, this context about Jesus becoming our high priest. And again, we see both aspects of his divinity and his humanity both coming together and, and how they're both important because Jesus, as this once-for-all high priest, became our once-for-all sacrifice. You know, the high priest was the one that would go in once a year, would offer sacrifice on the Day of Atonement on behalf of the people. Jesus offered himself. He didn't bring blood from another animal to be used as a sacrifice. He brought his own blood. He gave himself for us. And so that's going back to what we said a moment ago. Um, that's where his divinity is important because if he were not God, he would not have been able to do that. But there are a couple of words in verse 17 that are used to describe him, and that's merciful and faithful. And I don't want to take them in reverse order. Faithful is basically what we're saying here, that he was completely pure in every way. That's what enabled him to become our high priest in our sacrifice. He was faithful. But I'm so grateful that it was his mercy that led him to make this sacrifice for us. Any of y'all remember when you were a kid? I don't know if y'all still do this or not. Girls, you can tell me later. If you still do the game called Mercy. Y'all ever play Mercy? You know what Mercy is? Like, no, I didn't think so. I think that's an old person thing. But y'all know this. Mercy, you know, you can like grab somebody's hand like this, right? And you just go to town like, I'm just going to rip your fingers off. I'm going to do everything that I can to hurt you, right? That's Mercy. And then when somebody yells Mercy, then you stop. Okay? You won the game because they were acknowledging you are stronger than I am. You have the ability and the power to hurt me. Therefore, I'm going to cry for mercy. That's a good description of what mercy is. Mercy is understanding that I am the weaker person here, that, that you're in a place to do me harm. And my only hope is that you will have mercy on me. The Bible tells us that Jesus became merciful to us before we even asked for it. That because he is a merciful high priest, he, even though he has the right because of our sinfulness and the power to destroy us, he has the right to, to send us to an eternity separated from him, and that's what our sins deserve. But because of his mercy, he gave us another alternative. And that alternative is that we can trust in him. We can find forgiveness and new life and new hope in him. He is a merciful high priest. But then let's remember this as we close to verse 18. That's his divinity. That's what allowed him to become our sacrifice. But verse 18 says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus Christ suffered temptation the same way that we do. Isn't that mind-boggling to think about? Now, Jesus was different from us in that he was able not to sin. 
But don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus was not able to sin. He could have. That's what made temptation, temptation. I mean, if this were all just some, you know, just kind of going through the motions, but there's nothing really to it. No, that's not at all what it was. Jesus resisted that temptation because he was God, but he felt the weight of the temptation. In fact, the word there, suffered, is a word that indicates a lot of emotion. And I just point that out to remind us that when we go through the temptations of this life, when we go through the struggles of this life, that we have a Savior who understands what that feels like. He gets us. He knows what it's like to feel that weight. He knows what real temptation is all about. And because of that, He is able to provide hope. I wonder if any of us in the room, I wonder if any of us watching online today are in a place where we feel like hope is just slipping away. Maybe we're in a place where we feel like, man, I'm just trapped and I don't see any way out. I don't think there's any hope for me to overcome or to come out of this temptation or to come out of this hole or this pit of despair that I'm in. Maybe for some, you've even gotten so low that you've thought about taking your own life. But I want to tell you today that we have a Savior who understands, who knows us, who cares about us. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. And if you will turn to him, you'll find hope. If you will allow him to, to be your strength, if you will allow him to provide that comfort. But see, that, that depends on us and our willingness to say yes I'm going to trust in you. Guys, if you find yourself in a place where you feel like hope is gone, I just want to remind you today, Jesus gets you. He understands that. And he is able to provide for you what nobody else will ever be able to provide. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer today is that we trust in you and you as our faithful and merciful high priest, God, that we are just calling out to you. We're trusting in you. We're clinging to you alone because you are our only hope. And we recognize that today. Lord, I pray for those that are really struggling today. I pray for, for those that maybe just feel like hope is gone, that you would provide that reminder that you have not left us. That you will never leave us or forsake us. And so, Lord... Thank you for that assurance today. In your name we pray. Amen.